The Mike Tamano Happening. Two months ago, for our 16th episode, it was October 18th that week, less than two short months ago, I interviewed drummer, musician, and educator Gary Williams, and the chat was engaging, warm, funny, informative, and last week on his Facebook page, his daughter, Anna, announced that he had passed away unexpectedly, and I'm, I'm still stunned. And immediately after the interview, you know, we were texting back and forth, messaging each other with the intention to keep in touch. And alas, that is not to be. But I am grateful that I had the opportunity to interview Gary Williams and begin a friendship. And I'm going to really regret not being able to uh, to grow that friendship. So I do wish all the best to his family, his students, and thousands of admirers. Visit his Facebook page. It's also his YouTube channel, Drum Set Artistry, and get to know a great man who's gone too soon. So we'll dedicate today's program to the great Gary Williams and go back through our archives to our 16th episode and listen to that chat if you haven't done so already. Gary was a masterful drummer, a passionate educator in the world of music and the world in general is lesser in his absence. So welcome to our 24th episode. As we uh, wrap up the last month of 2021, we are going to continue to delve into the interview archives from my career. Let's see. I watched a couple of flicks this past week. I took in the movie Gaia. It's an independent horror film directed by Jocko Bauer. It's a tale of two forestry rangers in South Africa that find themselves in a forest with a very dark secret. No spoilers here. You check it out. If you're a horror movie fan, it's worth your time. A couple of notes. The acting was especially good. Each member of the small cast turned in solid performances. And uh, the dialogue was good. The story premise, kind of a combination of Stephen King's short story, It Grows on You, which was part of the Creepshow anthology film, George Romero's from the 80s. And it's got a bit of Heart of Darkness in it, a dash of The Ruins. Albeit the story's a bit derivative, but worth a watch for sure. Last night I ventured into the world of Tim Burton, a world that is usually extremely disappointing for me. Tim Burton movies are always a hit or miss for uh, this viewer. It's usually a miss. Even when I do like the movies, they're an acquired taste to revisit. And, you know, I love his Batman films, especially the first one. Sleepy Hollow was decent. Ed Wood, very good. I'm a fan of The Nightmare Before Christmas, which he didn't direct, but he produced it and wrote it. Overall, though, I find his films considerably lacking in the dialogue department, the, uh, the script department, but always visually stunning. So I did plunge into his 2012 film, Dark Shadows, and I had hope for it, but I was also expecting the usual letdown. And I wasn't let down in that expectation. I'm not one of those people that judge films by the books or TV shows or even previous films that they're based on. I take them for what they are. And in this particular case, the art direction, always amazing, just beautiful. Overall, the movie is awful, however. Johnny Depp chewing up the scenery, having fun with goofy lines of dialogue, the majority of which is trite, redundant, filled with forced exposition. What else? Well, the film had a glaring McDonald's product placement, which is always repulsive to me. 
the obligatory montage scene, which is set to a retro soundtrack tune. In other words, it's pure shit. Even a meaningless Christopher Lee cameo with a wink and a nod to the audience couldn't raise it above dismal for me. Danny Elfman's score, though, that had its moments. Uh, it pays tribute to the eerie television show score, but the comedy in the script is on the level of, uh, like, current day Saturday Night Live. So Tim Burton's Dark Shadows ends up being one of the best-looking, worst movies I've ever seen. On the reading side of things, I'm struggling to get to the end of Brian Keene's Dark Hollow. Uh, I have not been able to bring myself to finish Marilyn Manson's pathetic cry for attention in the guise of an autobiography but uh, i am flying through the 70s hippie classic by richard brodigan trout fishing in america it's superb it's kind of uh, beyond description surreal poetic very funny and it's been on my radar for a while and i found it last week in a thrift store for 50 cents so I picked it up, of course, and a great find, great read. It's led me down the rabbit hole to read Brodigan's poetry and research his brief, tragic, brilliant life. So Richard Brodigan's Trout Fishing in America, highly recommended. I'm loving every page. And the, sometimes passages are so perfect, I have to go back and reread them five, six, ten times. Beautiful sentence structure, just amazing stuff. Great insight. Also this past week, we lost the third member of the monkeys following Davy and Peter uh, Mike Nesmith has shuffled off the mortal coil and as I've stated many times the monkeys made a huge impact on me as a child and while I never got the chance to interview Mike Nesmith I did touch base with monkey Mickey Dolenz from January 14th 2009 into the vault as we wrap up 2021 going back to 2009 with Mickey from the monkeys on the Mike Tomano Happening Mickey Dolenz, how are you, Mickey? Hey, how you doing? Well, it's a pleasure to have you on. We're doing well. I was probably six years old when I watched The Monkees uh, on television with my sister. My sister was in love with The Monkees. You know, she had all headquarters and all the great albums. But I wanted to become a drummer because I thought that guy, Mickey Dolenz, was the coolest guy in the world. And I actually, I had my parents buy me a drum set because I wanted to be Mickey in The Monkees. Oh, uh-huh, cool. Did you ever play drums? Yeah, I still do. Oh, excellent. You started me on the path to uh, being a drummer. That's, you know what? And I bet you hear that a lot, though, because people who grew up in that era, they, they saw the monkeys having so much fun. It was every boy's fantasy to be a monkey. Yeah, it was a lot of fun doing the show, too, I got to tell you. I was a guitar player. I uh, was cast as the drummer. But I had about a year, you know, before I had to play live to to uh, practice after, after the show, uh, after they cast me in the show. I was... Uh, I was a guitar player. I still am. I still play guitar on stage mostly. Um, my audition piece was Johnny B. Good, but Chuck Berry. <laughs> I, um, I had already done a lot of television uh, and film work already at the time. Uh, I had a series when I was a kid called Circus Boy on NBC, and my parents were both in the business. And so I had already done The, the Monkees was my second series. Uh, so I'd already had a lot of experience. And so I, I was very, very comfortable on, on the set. 
and um, you know, and and I was uh, a big fan, and you know, of uh, of people like Danny Kaye and Jerry Lewis and uh, uh, Red Skelton and uh, all those comics of the '40s and '50s, and so. I think a lot of my uh, my shtick and stuff came from those influences. <laughs> right, right. Kind of two and two. Uh, yeah. Davey and I both had mostly theatrical film backgrounds. I mean, you had to, um, and Peter and Mike had mostly musical backgrounds, but you had to be able to, to do it all to even get in the auditions. You had to be able to mm. sing. You had to be able to act. You had to be able to play an instrument. And like I say, I played, uh, I played guitar. Uh, and so it was kind of, but David and I, had um, more uh, more theatrical backgrounds. David had been on Broadway already. Yeah, right. Uh, in in um, uh, Oliver, right, uh, as the Artful Dodger. I don't think it was uh, sort of planned. I mean, they didn't say, "Well, we're going to have two guys that right, are right. mostly musicians and two guys that are mostly actors." That they were going for personalities because the screen tests that we did um, were extensive. It went on and on and on. Uh, much more uh, intensive than any screen test I had ever done, and. Um, you know what? what uh, it was a lot like the way you cast a uh, Broadway musical, because let's face it, ultimately the Monkees was like putting a little Marx Brothers um, movie on television every week. Right, right. Uh, in fact, it was John Lennon that first made that uh, observation, even before I'd thought about it. You know, he said the Monkees are like the Marx Brothers. Uh, the Monkees were much more like, say, the Marx Brothers than they really were the Beatles. The Monkees was a television show about a band that wanted to be the Beatles. But you became so huge that it just it took on a life of its own yeah, outside see, of what it was supposed exactly to be. That's exactly right. Like yeah. Mike Nesmith once said, um, it's like Pinocchio becoming a real little boy. <laughs> yeah, right. And then all of a sudden you're touring. Now, now you, you guys toured with Jimi Hendrix in the days of those odd pairings. Uh, he, he, he toured with you. act, and I had... Um, Suggested I'd seen him at Monterey Pop Festival, and I had suggested to the producers he wasn't uh, very well known yet. And I said uh, he'd make a good opening act because he's very theatrical, um, which which he uh, he was. He was a very theatrical uh, act, uh, uh, and um, uh, I thought it would make interesting theater, shall we say? And yeah. I guess they did too because he was our opening act for a while. We had Ike and Tina Turner. We had the Fifth Dimension. You know, a couple yeah. of other opening acts. Some legendary tours back then. If you look mm. through the annals of rock and roll, here's the thing about the Monkees. It was such a hip TV show. There were a lot of good inside jokes, and and uh, it was really a favorite with the rock stars of the day. Frank Zappa, big fan. Uh, mm. The Beatles were fans. You know, John Lennon, like you said, compared to the Marx <laughs> Brothers. There was a lot of people that got it. You know, there was also a lot of people that didn't get it. You know, there's still a lot of people <laughs> that don't that, that didn't get what the monkeys was all about. You know, a lot of uh, to this day, I've had people come up. In fact, even people like uh, in the business or journalists and say, "So, how long had you guys been together before you got the television show?" <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, please. Yeah, right. Do, do your homework, please. Um, you know, like I said, ultimately the monkeys was a television show about an imaginary group that lived in this imaginary beach house and um, it was a set <clears throat> and we had these imaginary adventures you know with all the monsters and the bad guys and uh, it, it was about this this band that wanted to be famous and because on the television show <clears throat> we were never famous on the television show we were always struggling yeah to trying to famous. make it right and I think that's one of the things that endeared it to a lot of people because all the kids out there could relate to that well, and they still do. See, it's it's timeless humor yeah. that finds a new audience with each new generation, and 
Uh, the music is some of the best pop music ever recorded. So it, well, that's got to be. Look who was writing those songs. Uh, the, yeah, Carole the greatest. King and Jerry Goffin, Neil Diamond, Neil Sedaka, uh, Boyce and Hart. Right. Uh, you know, Diane Hildebrand, K- uh, Carol Bayer Sager, uh, David Gates, Harry Nielsen. Uh, Harry Nielsen. Yeah. I mean, you know, you have th- that kind of pedigree, and it's pretty hard to mess it up. <laughs> but that's got to be rewarding to see, you know, a body of work and your career continue to find new audiences. Yeah, it's pre- it's pretty nice. On when I do concerts, um, there'll be at least there'll sometimes be three generations of people there. You know, I also do other things. I direct. I produce. I write. I paint. I do. You know, I, I work in many different uh, fields uh, of the entertainment industry. Um, uh, or the you know the the world of the arts. I uh, I can't say I have a preference. I I, I get in, interested or involved in a particular project. I'll get fired up about something. It may be a TV show I'm working on, or it may be a, a record. It may be you know I love touring. I love going on the road. I don't like the traveling part, but I love going and doing my solo uh, rock and roll show. I tell you what I've been doing a lot of recently over the last few years is a lot of Broadway musical uh, work. I did Aida, the Elton John musical. I did that on the road and on Broadway for nearly two years. In fact, I was sitting in my dressing room. This is an interesting little side note. I was sitting in my dressing room on Broadway doing this musical uh, a couple years ago and adding up all the performances I'd done and how long I'd been working on this uh, Elton John musical, and um, I figured it out that I had worked on Aida longer than I worked on the Monkees. <laughs> Look at that. Yeah. Pippin, uh, the national tour. I did Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. I did uh, Grease. So I, I must say I really love doing um, uh, musical theater. Yeah, sounds like it. And, and you stay busy. Mm. How did you end up uh, doing Rob Zombie's version of Halloween? He was a fan. He just called up and offered me a cameo. What's it like working with him? Oh, he's great. He's really a good director. <laughs> he's out there. Yeah, he does some. He does some fun stuff. He's a, he's a fan, I think, and that shows in his yeah. work. You know, he's a fan of the genre yeah. and he's a fan of films. That's I cool. I couldn't watch most of it, but <laughs> no, it's pretty brutal. Now, speaking of uh, the apple not falling far from the tree, uh, you have a daughter. Who, well, you have four daughters, right? Yeah. And Amy uh, has done some cool stuff too. She's an actress. Now, when she first told you, Dad, I think I want to kind of follow this uh, path. What was your advice for her? Get a good lawyer. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that's, that's probably the best advice you can give someone in show business, huh? Yeah. No. I um. Uh, you know. I I incur- I didn't. Uh, well, I didn't encourage or discourage her. You know. She decided that about sixteen or something like that. That. She said, I want to be an actress, and, and I, uh, I thought that was good, because she didn't say, I want to be a star. She said, I want to be an actress, and, and so I did give her quite a bit of advice, and I still do, you know, over the years, and she's dipped in and out of it, you know. She <clears throat> did a lot of work for a few years, and then got married and sort of backed off a little bit. She's been thinking about getting back into it uh, now. Yeah, she's, she's very uh, natural on screen, very good. Yeah. I like watching her. I saw her in uh, some crazy horror film. She, she loves doing those horror films. Was she in a movie called Ticks? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was a lot of fun. It was kind of a yeah, throwback she, to she the 50s. She loves doing those horror films. It's the funniest thing. And she can't stand the sight of blood. She can't even, like, <laughs> she, like, gets a splinter in her finger. She's, like, goes hysterical. Well, listen, and it, loves watching those horror films. It's the funniest thing. We want people to visit your website, too, to stay abreast of all MickeyDolans.com. Yeah. Yeah, yeah MickeyDolans.com. That'll keep you up to date on what I'm doing. Well, it's good to talk to you, and best to you. Great talking to you guys. Thanks. All right, so I 
finally got around to watching Alex Winter's sprawling Zappa documentary. I found it on Hulu, and this is from last year. I just got around to watching it because my queue is full of stuff to get around to listening to, reading, watching, doing. And so uh, I loved it. Great insight into the genius of and the career roller coaster of the one and only Frank Zappa. Now, because I noticed these things, it was very apparent that in the coverage of Zappa's battle with the PMRC in the 80s, that James Baker's wife, Susan, was singled out in suspiciously Tipper Gore, who spearheaded the damn thing, the whole campaign, was not mentioned. Now, that to me is extremely aggravating because it's a rewrite of history by omission on Winter's part to uh, seemingly protect his political allegiance. But I don't know. That to me is inexcusable. But suffice to say, watching the documentary and being a lover of all things Zappa since my initial exposure in adolescence uh, led me into the archives of my radio show for this wild interview from December 3rd, 2011 with Mothers of Invention member Don Preston. Enjoy. Born in Flint, Michigan in 1932, Don Preston's life of music has been one of diversity and incredible creativity. Best known as a member of Frank Zappa's Mothers of Invention, Don's trademark style as a pianist and keyboardist is a template of innovation. He's been sought out by jazz legends for his fearless contributions. He's also scored numerous films and stage plays. It's a pleasure to welcome to the program Don Preston. Well, hi. Hi. (laughs) Great to talk to you. Uh, Yeah, I'm... uh... Uh, I always enjoy uh, doing this, and Chicago is one of my favorite places. It's a great hub of music lovers. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. You know, I grew up uh, in a very musical family like you did, and I was exposed to Frank Zappa's music early on, but the first time I got to really see you was in the Uncle Meat movie, and (laughs) 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 a lot of people must uh, bring that up to you. Yeah, well, once in a while. <laughs> well, now, you were born into a family that would make it really hard not to go into music, I would guess. Uh, well, uh, yeah, my my father was always trying to talk me out of it, <laughs> but right. it didn't really work. What led you? Uh, yeah, because he was a musician, I, right? Yeah, my father was a, a composer and, and a performer. He, but mostly he wrote... Uh, he was a resident composer for the Detroit Philharmonic, so he he did some, a bunch of music for them, and uh, and he had a whole uh, other thing that he was writing for all the time. So what 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 was your first instrument? Was it the piano? Yeah, my first in- instrument was the piano, and and uh, when I was in the service, I I started playing bass a, a lot. And uh, and when I got out of the service, uh, I I continued playing bass. Mm-hmm. Played quite a quite a bit. Was that stand up or electric? Sorry. Was it stand up or electric or both? Oh, they didn't have electric bass back then. Oh, that's right. Okay, that's right. Fender hadn't <laughs> hadn't brought it to the forefront yet. Yeah. So what Back, were, they they didn't even have amplification, so you had to have your strings pretty high, and 
and have some sort of, uh, I always used to back myself into a corner, you know, and use that as uh, amplification. So have you have your sound bounce off the walls? Yeah. Hmm. What were some of your earliest musical influences? Oh, well, you know, like when I was in my teens, I think my major influences were uh, Ralph Stravinsky, uh, and uh, mostly because of, of the... Uh, uh, Fantasia, you know, mm-hmm. uh, they played uh, the Rites of Spring in Fantasia, and then uh, other than that, though, I I, uh, I listened a lot to George Shearing and, and Earl Garner and Stan Kenton. I think those are the three main uh, influences I had, you know, when I was young. Who were some of the earliest people that you played with in your career? Well, uh, I would have to say, I mean, notably, anyhow, well, Herbie Mann was uh, probably the first person that, you know, of note that, that I played with, because he was in the Army with me. I mean, we were in the Army, in, a, in an Army band together. Oh, really? Yeah, and we used to, you know, we used to play a lot. We'd jam. He he, and a few other guys there taught me a lot about music. When I first entered, you know, got in the, the band, I didn't know hardly anything about music. I mean, I could play, but I didn't know, you know, how songs were constructed and that whole thing. So, I mean, because I, I, I was a kind of a late starter, I had never played with other people before that, so I, I learned a tremendous amount uh, when I was there. And, and when I got out of the service, uh, I played bass with Elvin Jones and uh, Tommy Flanagan, uh, Yusuf Latif. Wow. Uh, people like that, and, and uh, when I moved out to California, I, I actually played bass also with Carla Blay and Paul Blay, and uh, even did some gigs with Shorty Rogers. Wow. <laughs> Which, uh, yeah, that was really pretty interesting, although uh, all along the way, uh, I never let my piano go. I always kept the piano up quite a bit, you know, so that uh, it it always was... I wouldn't say, I, I couldn't, can't say either one was my main instrument, though, because I played both about the same uh, abilities. You know, when you speak about Yusuf Latif and Herbie Mann, I, I wanted to ask a twofold question here. I've spoken mm-hmm. with Yusuf, and he's a, a delightful man, and he takes music very seriously, and he has a spiritual approach to his music. Did that uh, suggest any way of your, uh, did that suggest your approach at all? You're talking about Yusuf, right? Yeah, Yusuf Latif. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, he was very serious, uh, studied musician, and uh, I, I always enjoyed his his approach. Um, I mean, he he was very methodical, and 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 he was also. Uh, he was kind of like that in in you know away from music. He was a, he was an excellent businessman. He he I think he owned a chicken farm uh, back in those days in the, you know in the early fifties or mid fifties, 
and uh, so he he managed to make a living uh, a good living with with that plus whatever you know jazz stuff because I don't know how much they were making with jazz but uh, so he was smart enough to supplement the musician musician's income right right of course <laughs> smart yeah. lesson for people right and with Herbie Mann, I mean, he experimented with all different styles of music. He was one of the first jazz artists who adopted rock motifs to his music. Did that help you when you uh, later played different styles? Um, I, 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 you know, I was so in the formative part of my career that uh, I don't think I thought about any of that right. other than uh, getting through the song without forgetting the bridge, you know. <laughs> right. That's still where I'm at after about 25 years of playing. <laughs> and you had a long tenure with Frank Zappa and the Mothers. When and how did you meet him, Don? Um, well, um, the thing about that was uh, I was in three different Frank Zappa bands. So uh, which band are you speaking of? Well, just your original meeting with Frank. So the original band... Uh, at, at, toward the end of 1969, I think we had a meeting, and Zappa said he announced that he was disbanding the band. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we were so bowled over by uh, that, and plus the fact that we were following Zappa along the way, that we didn't realize that he couldn't do that. Uh, and, and, I mean, it wasn't any more his band than it was ours. Right. So if we'd have had a little bit of wits about us, we would have said, okay, you go along your own way. We'll, we're going to stay the mothers of invention. You can do whatever you want. We could have done that. Mm -hmm. But we didn't. We just disbanded like little sheep. And uh, and we went all, all, everybody went our own way. But it, it was really traumatic, I must say. Uh, because by that time, we... I think we thought of ourselves as kind of a family, you know, and 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 breaking up this family like that—it was very, very hard. Yeah, on everybody. And you're talking about the first uh, couple of albums with the Mothers, and it really was a band. You know, it wasn't just a uh, well, a leader. Well, I'm his... talking about the first group, which oh, okay. basically, I mean, if, if you take the. Uh, semi-original guys and 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 the original guys. I mean, the original guys are uh, Jimmy Carl Black, Roy Estrada, mm -hmm. and Ray Collins. And uh, and then they added me and Bunk. So, I mean, as long as we were all, all of us were in the band, that, to me, was the first band. And, and of course, he added other people. He added Art Tripp, and uh, he added Buzz Gardner, and... Uh, and then uh, what's his name, Lil George, and you know. Mm -hmm. So, uh, as long as all of those guys were in the uh, band, I, I always thought of it was the first band, and uh, and so and that's the band that he disbanded. And there was no band like that before or since. What was it like rehearsing and performing with Frank? Well, it was interesting because. Uh, First, you have Bunk and our trip, where Andy and Underwood were all uh, highly schooled musicians. They and they all were great sight readers, and they uh, 
so you know it was easy just to give them music and uh and have them play it where on the other hand Roy and Jim uh didn't know anything about reading music <laughs> and and they they were kind of had they had to be taught music by rote in other words Zapper would play something and he would say oh okay, you play this and you play that and and so that's how he constructed and those first four albums uh, are all done by rote although he had music for brown shoes and call any vegetable and stuff like that uh, for the guys that could read mm-hmm. but, but the guys that couldn't read he, he just told them what to do those tours had to be surreal the what? the, the tours the tours that oh you the were. tours well, yeah, they were uh, they were interesting. Uh, <laughs> the, one of the things that I, that always amazed me was, uh, I mean, well, first of all, you have to realize that Zappa was playing in my band around 1961. Uh, it was a band that uh, was totally experimental, and we had all kinds of strange instruments uh, I think that's where I showed Zappa how to play a bicycle and <laughs> uh, actually it was before that come to think of it but uh, nevertheless uh, so he, he was totally aware you know my record collection was almost identical to his uh, and and he knew that Bunk and I could go almost anywhere, you know, in, in the in music, and and so he. That's what the touring was like, you know. I mean, there were some uh, concerts we did where we played for two hours, and in that two hours, we only played three songs, and the rest of it was all improvised. Wow! Wow! Just incredible. And the other thing that I, I tell people, they say, well, how could we get to be like the mothers, you know? And, and I said, well, uh, we rehearsed for six months, seven days a week, eight hours a day, nonstop, Christmas, Thanksgiving, you name it. There, there, wasn't, there were no holidays. Right. We rehearsed every day for six months straight, eight hours a day. And and that's how you get to, to have that kind of excellence of, of performing. The era of the mothers that you were a part of had a fraternal connection that has continued on. We, we You hinted at this earlier, but uh, the grandmothers and uh, the connection that you guys had, when you're playing that level of music, uh, do you need to touch base with those guys every once in a while? Is that why? Because you, you wanted to play that level of music again? Uh, touch base with what guys? Well, the guys that you were in the mothers with, you know, as you you guys continue now with the grandmothers, and you know, well, up until recently, Roy Estrada was in the band, and Jimmy Carl Black is dead, so yeah. and Roy and Ray Collins is God only knows where, but <laughs> uh, so there wasn't really anybody to get in touch with except Ian, maybe, and and he's retired and living up in Oregon or something, right. And uh, Ruth, I do talk to Ruth a lot from time to time. Now, does Ruth Otherwood still play? She wasn't in that band anyhow, so... Yeah. Does she still play? Is she still playing? No, Ruth doesn't play. She kind of retired. Uh, she had two children, and she devoted her entire energy and time to raising those kids. 
That's, that's and, honorable. Uh, I, I just left her a message on her phone because I'm I'm working on Inca Roads right now, and and when I listen to her play that, mm-hmm. I'm telling you, I have never heard anything like mm-hmm. it <laughs> in my whole experience of music. It's like she she plays that thing. Well, there's this one section that's very difficult uh, to play. And she plays, at first she plays it, you know, the tempo of the song, which is mind, you know, mind-bending speed. <laughs> right. Right. And and then there's a George Duke solo in the in the piece, and then after that she... She doubles the tempo of the the way she played it the first time, and that you can't even believe how fast that is. Mm. You know, I mean, it's it's like, and, and I'm trying to do it. It's like, you know, it's like that uh-huh. fast. It's like, it's like, yeah. And but the, but the notes are complicated, and, and how do you do that? You know. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Well, this is nice. We're having Don Preston play piano for us uh, on the program. That's fantastic. <laughs> sure, sure, like, why not? Earlier on, you said you've always had a piano with you, so there it is. It's right next to you. Uh, it is. It's right next to me. It's uh, my constant companion. <laughs> right, right. So, so now, when you when you're making music today, and you're sitting down and you're looking at Inca Roads, or you're you're uh, working on a film score, or you're getting ready to go play with Bunk. Uh, what does a day of woodshedding look like or sound like for uh, Don Preston these days? Oh, it's not very methodical, I have to admit. Uh, but, uh, you know, my pianos, I mean, I, I have an electric piano and a grand piano, and uh, of course I don't have to turn the grand piano on, but my electric piano, since I'm going to be playing this stuff on this piano, uh, I, I use that to practice with uh, some of the melodies and everything. And so uh, it's, I, I, you know, I'll eat some food and you know, like breakfast and then take, go look at all my emails and check all that out and everything and uh, go to Facebook and check that out and, and then come in and then I'll do some exercises and, uh, and I, I'll, I'll try. I try to do the various exercises that I do uh, uh, first before I start uh, rehearsing myself, rehearsing some of the songs. Like uh, uh, right now, I'm working on "Don't You Ever Wash That Thing" and uh, "Inca Roads" and "Advanced Romance." Uh, these are new songs that the, the grandmothers haven't played yet uh, Sleeping in a Jar Willie the Pimp uh, those those songs are pretty easy I don't have to rehearse those very much Advanced Romance is easy but I, I, I have to get the form down pretty good you know so I can do that so I mean I, I just go over things all day you know and, and like I'll spend uh, maybe 10 minutes going over something and then do something and then go come back and spend another 20 minutes doing something and so that's pretty much my day is just uh, and it depends on how close to any kind of performance I, I'm, I am because then I step up uh, I practice more exercise than I normally do and 
practice, uh, and, and, and I get the tempos right, you know, for these pieces. Okay. Uh, but now, will there be a chance of you playing with the Zappa plays Zappa that Dweezil takes out on the road? I seriously doubt it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> really, yeah? I really seriously doubt it. Yeah, um, they have... Well, it's... I, for, for a while there, I thought it was possible because Dweezil wasn't going along with his mother's uh, regime. But then, uh, little by little, he started... Uh, Doing what she does, and and uh, so I, I don't think he. I know that she doesn't like me at all, oh. and and I I have a feeling that uh, he is following in her footsteps. Oh, so well. I I don't know. I could be wrong because I saw. I don't know if it was Duizo, but somebody wanted to be my friend on Facebook, and it was his name. Oh well, but I, uh, that would really surprise me. You know, well, it would really would. We're talking with Don Preston and uh, discussing his life in music. And I wanted to say, first of all, that that the fact that you won't be with Zappa plays Zappa, that's a missed opportunity for the fans, and it, and it's sad that. Um, but I guess business sometimes uh, is an ugly uh, world, you know. I wanted to, you know, say that if, if we listed all your accomplishments, we'd have to do a, a whole other show on it. But I want to name a, a little word association here. I want to name some of the people you've played with and just see if you can give us a few words on working with them. Okay. Uh, John Lennon? Uh, well, <laughs> that was a very uh, unique uh, situation where we were playing at the Fillmore East the same Fillmore East that's the white album of the mothers Fillmore live at the Fillmore right. and uh, and all of a sudden uh, I heard this huge hush in the crowd and, and John Lennon and Yoko Ono came out on stage and one of the things I don't think that I, I was uh, appreciated at that time but I, I watched videos of that evening and uh one of the things that really struck me was that Lennon started doing hand signals with the band and conducting the band, you know, in, in that fashion. And uh, he was amazingly good at doing that. I mean, he really constructed a piece out of, you know, the hand signals. So I thought that was really remarkable, you know, that he could... Uh, get into that whole thing. I mean, I was knew that he was like... Probably the the furthest out thinking Beatle that there was, uh, you know, out of the Beatles, he was he was always like ahead of the curve uh, musically. Yeah. Or just at least, uh, you know, the way music is constructed. So, <clears throat> but so I mean, it was it wasn't really surprising, but it, it was. It was just really nice to see that that he could fit into that groove. Right. Well, I have to preface the next one with um, a little background. My career was shaped by a number of discoveries I made in my youth, and one of them was the Fillmore East June 1971 album by the Mothers with Flo and Eddie. Uh -huh. And uh -huh. being that I was interested in both comedy and music, it really lent itself to suggest how I approached my career. When Flo and Eddie came into the band, um, 
it kind of changed into a vaudevillian sort of surreal, weird uh, comedy show in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, how, how was that received by the other musicians? Oh, well, everybody kind of, uh, you know, we took, we just went along with it. And, um, and, and Mark and Howard, they, they were kind of laughing at themselves even doing it, you know. Right. I mean, if you watch 200 motels, you can. You, there's all kinds of references to. Okay, now we're playing in a comedy group. Uh, and so, I mean, that was and Zappa. You know, of course, he was always writing down what we were saying. Yeah. Uh, that's how we wrote that whole movie. Yeah. But uh, <clears throat> yeah, that that was always kind of just. Uh, laughed at in the sense that that we were uh we were laughing at what we were laughing at you know right. it's kind of like that you've been playing with uh bunk gardner for decades and how does that relationship how what's what's the key to longevity with uh with two artists playing together well uh you know i, I guess i would pre have to preface that with the fact that uh when I was in the service, in uh, we were I was uh, in Trieste, Italy, uh, you know, with Herbie Mann, and my roommate there was Buzz Gartner. Okay. And so he and I roomed together for like two and a half years until he got out, and, and then I got out. But uh, so when I got back uh, to the states, and I finally wound up in California. The two of them came to California too, and we hooked up and uh, and became good friends and did did a lot of uh, experimenting with music and we jammed a lot together and everything and and it was like uh, and just so when I got in the mothers uh, because I had already known Frank for a few years and um, and he knew you know he he knew my potential as far as uh, getting doing experimental kind of stuff, and he also knew that I, I love Stravinsky and 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 all the other composers that he liked, uh, Cage and Stockhausen and, and all those people, Verrest. Right. And and so he he got me in the band, and then he, and then I uh, he he said, well, we should have a sax player or something like that, and and I said, well, what about Bunk? Remember Bunk and and he did remember Bunk, and uh, he didn't really know Bunk's potential, though, because uh, he'd only seen Bunk play saxophone, whereas Bunk, you know, he played bassoon, flute, you know, clarinet and bass clarinet, all the all the whole Reed family. And so uh, I think Bunk auditioned it, and Zappa threw all kinds of stuff at him, and Bunk was, a, you know, he was an exceptional sight reader. Right. And he could do that. Now, he actually played with the Cleveland Symphony for a while on, on bassoon. Amazing. What an amazing life. Not so, from the beginning of the touring, Bunk and I were roommates, and we stayed roommates all the way until the band disbanded. And uh, and even after that, uh, we, we weren't roommates, but we... We, we only live like a mile from each other, and uh, we stayed close friends, and and so when we went on these tours back east as the Down and Bunk show, we uh, we roomed together again. You know, it was it was like felt very natural to do that. Yeah. 
It's amazing. I want to name a couple more people and just get your uh, input on some of the people you've played with. Um, you also played with Flo and Eddie after they had uh, split from the mothers and, and went on to their solo stuff, which is some great pop music that I think is uh, tragically undiscovered. No. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, I mean, we uh, what we did was, because Zappa got thrown into the orchestra pit, and he, uh, right. oh, wait a minute, i got to check this. Sure. And he, he, he didn't, uh, and well, the other thing that happened is that the uh, club burned down and all our equipment burned down with it. Yeah. Uh, that was before he got thrown into the orchestra pit. Uh, but as a result of that, uh, he was incommunicado, and he, uh, uh, hold on a second, I'm making dog food <laughs> <laughs> while we're talking here. How do you make dog food? Oh, it's easy. I, I just go to the store and buy some chicken breasts and uh, cook those all up. And then I mix them with brown rice and green beans. All right. Chop that all up, and uh, my dogs love it. Oh, yeah, they're spoiled. That's wonderful. They have a gourmet chef. Uh, well, it's uh, I, I always go by, you know, how how much do they like the food? <laughs> and, uh, and and they, they generally turn their nose up at dog food. And especially, <laughs> I mean, I buy Science Diet, which is one of the best dog foods you can buy. And they still turn their nose up. Well, you're cooking so with for my them. little meal. Yeah, they gobble it down, you know, as fast as they can. All right, which is uh, <laughs> all one could ask. That is. How many dogs do you have? I have three, but they're all little, uh, you know, lasso apso. All right. So yeah, they're they're really sweet little dogs. They're pretty old. There's 15, and two dogs are 13. Wow. That's so, the good yeah. food they're eating. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, yeah, you know, if, if they eat well, uh, they're probably going to live longer and not have rheumatism and all the, the other things that dogs get. Right. You want me to hold on a second, or do you want me... We... Oh, no, I'm fine. Oh, okay. I'm fine. I'm, I'm just... Uh, uh, oh. What I need to do is isolate this food into some other container. Okay. Uh, anyhow... Uh, well, here I'm going to move on. Where were we? <laughs> uh, well, here let's let's move on to um, so so you guys as a result of Frank being laid up, you kind of did the fluorescent leech and Eddie album with Flo and Eddie, right? And and so we went on a tour, and strangely enough, the tour was almost identical to the tour a year ago, uh, previous to that, right? And uh, and and one of the weird things about that tour is that we played at the Rainbow Theater. Exactly one year from the day we played previously, where Frank got thrown into the orchestra pit by this maniacal jerk, and uh, so we and he had and he was he went to prison for one year, so he was getting out on the day we were playing there, <laughs> and and we didn't know what to expect, you know, from all that. Yeah. So, uh, but nothing happened. We you know we played our gig and. It was cool. What another artist that you played with that um, as a youngster, my drum teacher, who subsequently has become one of my closest friends in life, Bob Berg, turned me on to Don Ellis and uh, the Electric Bath oh. album. And you got to play with Don as well. 
I I did, and, and Don was a very dear friend of mine, and um, I never played in his band, though, uh, mm-hmm. probably because my reading wasn't as, as good as I would like, and... Uh, and his music was harder than Zappa's music, probably. Uh, it was really... Uh, he was a great writer. Right. And uh, But we had a job playing experimental music, if you will, again, uh, at this coffee house, and he played drums because he was a frustrated drummer. Okay. <laughs> kind of like Zappa was, too. Right. And uh, so Don, Don was one of the nicest people I've ever met, and uh, I always enjoyed that. I thought, you know, he really died prematurely. Uh, yeah. and I always thought that was because his wife died prematurely too. You think he was? He was, it was sad, sad heart. Sorry. You think a sad heart may have led to that? Uh. Uh-uh. Oh. You said his life, his his wife died early. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm having trouble. No, hearing no, I was say, I was say you said it, his his wife dying early may have led to that. I was just wondering if uh, if he if it was a despair or uh, depression. Well, yeah, you know that happens a lot. It's not a lot, but it does happen. To people where one person will die and and then the other person will die like a month later. And it wasn't months later with him. It was more like uh, eight months later, but still. Yeah. Uh, and he was like, well, she, first of all, she was one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen in my life. And and he was like really destroyed by that. Mm. Speaking of drummers, you, you played with some of my all-time favorites, and I wanted to throw some of these guys out at you and see. Uh, you played with Ainsley Dunbar. Yeah, Ainsley, he's one of the most underrated drummers, I think, in the whole scene. Yeah, absolutely. I always thought he was the best drummer that Zapp ever had. Yeah, yeah. And then there was Jimmy Carl Black. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. He was a a great friend of yours, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Jimmy was great. We, we, you know, he and I formed the, the first grandmother's. 1980, yeah. 1980, uh, we had a band called the Grandmothers with uh, Tom Fowler and uh, Walt Fowler mm-hmm. and uh, Tony Duran and uh, Jimmy Me and Bunk. Now, that was a pretty incredible band. It really was an incredible band. And early on in your career, you played with Elvin Jones. Did you uh, keep in touch with Elvin later on? Uh, not really, no. I Actually, I, I went to go see him one time, uh, but I, I couldn't I couldn't do it. Uh, actually, they wouldn't let me in. I didn't want to pay just to talk to somebody, you know. Yeah, right. Uh, and, and I had already played there a few times, a place called Catalina's uh, here in L.A. But... Uh, so I, I never got to to uh, see him again because he died after that. Yeah. Well, uh, that's one thing about being old. Everybody dies on you. <laughs> yeah, I guess. 
it's better old than young, right? <laughs> well, in some things, yeah. Yeah. Well, now, as you continue on in your artistic endeavors, what are some of the things that you're looking forward to? What, what can, what can uh, fans expect coming up from Don Preston and company? Well, the grandmother just signed with a, a, a new agency, um, a big agency, and we also just signed with a, a, a manager, which we've never had before. Oh. And uh, so things are looking very good for the grandmothers uh, in terms of getting out more, you know, playing a lot more, and uh, just being... Uh, you know, probably make more money, and uh, but uh, I think the main thing is that we're going to be playing a lot more than we ever have, and, and more places too, uh, because the agency you know books the entire world. So uh, we're we're looking forward to playing some few places like China or Japan, uh, stuff like that. That's great news. Well, now, what advice do you have for fledgling musicians? Earlier on, you were talking about how you would, there were no holidays, and there were eight-hour days and 12-hour days of rehearsal. What, what advice do you have for new musicians? Uh, you know, I don't think I, I could give anyone any advice, because if, if the mothers of invention were just starting out today, they wouldn't get anywhere. It was only... a because of the time, the timing of where we were and when we were, um, you know, it, the, the, the people were ripe for something like us, but they weren't, I, I don't think that they could, it's just a way more commercial world today run yeah. by uh, attorneys and people that don't know anything about music and and the whole art music you know like art rock and 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 all of that it doesn't exist now i mean sure there there are some elements you know of that but Basically, it's mostly just commercial stuff, you know, that yeah. make me want to gag sometimes when I listen <laughs> to some of the groups. You're right. Uh, no. Nope. But, uh, you know, that's, uh, I think that's just uh, the, the way society's become. And, and the, the other thing is that when we started The Mothers, most of the groups out there doing things, they weren't, even though uh, we did make an album to that effect, but they, nobody was in it for the money. They were in it for the, the art. Right. And they were trying to create art. And uh, sure, if they made money, fine, but you know that's not why they were doing it. And I would say today that that's just about the only reason why people are out there, other than getting laid, the only reason that people are playing music. Thanks for joining us as we continue to raid the vaults to close out the year. Next week, we're going to revisit some interviews I did with two radio legends that influenced me and shaped my broadcasting career. So until then, peace and love. Thanks for listening. 
The Mike Tomano Happening.